This is 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape, where we ask leading architects, urbanists, designers and thinkers to reflect on the ideas, inspirations and interests that shape their practice and their views on the present and future of architecture and cities. It's 20 questions in 20 minutes with me, Owen Hopkins. Can you tell us who you are, what you do, and where you are speaking from? All right. So, yeah, we're space popular. I'm Frederick Helberg, and I am Lara Lesmes, and we are usually based in London, but right now we're speaking from Spain. And we do all sorts of stuff. We're what you call multidisciplinary. So we are we're architects. Uh, we do buildings. We do interiors, furniture. We also do quite a lot of teaching. And in the last, let's say, five years, we do a lot of research and design around questions around virtual spaces. And that was going to be my first question, or my second question, even. How did you become interested in, in AR and VR? I think it came about while we were still living in, in Thailand, in Bangkok, where when the first uh, commercially available headset uh, was out in the market and we could get one. And that, I mean, we were obviously interested in that before, which is why we were keen to get that first headset. And from then on, we started doing uh, experiments. Actually, that the first experiment was Frederick did with, the, with his students um, there in Bangkok. Quite exciting workshop testing out what, what you could do with, uh, with VR. I think we're also just interested generally about the kind of larger possibilities of media and technology and architecture um, and sort of experiences of space and, and what technology and, and new forms of media can do and how it changes architecture. Yeah, which all comes down to just a general interest in the, the experience of space and designing for that experience and developing a criteria for designing based on how you experience space. That leads sort of quite interestingly to the, the next question I was going to ask, because I, I'm personally quite interested in non-digital virtual spaces. I think museums are examples of that. So John Soane's museum is maybe the obvious one, but there are certainly others. The Architecture Gallery at the Carnegie Museum of Art, for example. There's urban spaces that have virtual characteristics. The Roman Forum, Las Vegas, obviously, famously, Times Square, maybe. And then there are the sort of consciously virtual spaces. Disney World is the cliched example. And then there's sort of casinos uh, in Macau, which I know were the focus of a particular teaching project that you did. Um, how do you see that relationship between architecture and VR? What are the sort of commonalities and where do they begin to diverge? Yeah, um, there are several paths to uh, to basically backtrack the, the historical timeline of the virtual in architecture. One of the paths that we have been exploring is considering uh, basically like the augmented surfaces of architecture, with, which would take you back to the fresco, to the tapestry, etc. So where basically like the, the walls of a room would start opening up to other worlds, which they have been doing again ever since. We started painting things on walls with a, a very important shift with the, the understanding of perspective. Then there is another path which uh, has more to do with the architecture in media, um, architecture being distributed through the book and later on through film, uh, photography, etc. And also all the, the, the different devices that are much more related to the actual headset that were developed to to be able to access 
these experiences like the stereograph, uh, these weird things, uh, Victorian machines uh, that allow you to, to have a stereoscopic vision with uh, photographs and so on. But it's quite an uncommon way of thinking. Often when we, today, when we speak about the virtual, people immediately think about the, the recent development in virtual reality. But of course, before that, virtual was being used in philosophy and in architecture as well, in all sorts of different ways to mean just anything that is almost it, but not quite, or sort of broader, more, more philosophical ideas. And we are sort of pushing to try and broaden again the view of what the virtual is and that it might not necessarily have anything to do with technology or, um, or at least not electronic or certainly not digital technology, like again, like a fresco or, or even yeah, the book or any form of representation of something. It's a concept of understanding reality or representing a thing or an object, right? Yeah. So virtual is that which is something in its essence, but not in its entirety, which immediately has to do very much with things having an original or like basically when you deal with the virtual, you're by definition always referencing something. So the, the word the virtual reality used for headsets and so on is perhaps a little bit, maybe a bit unfortunate in some ways, like because it opens up more and more more complex ideas than it like augmented reality is a form of virtual reality and it's all these terms get quite mixed up if you look at the actual words and terminology the show you did at ArcDes, value in the virtual which was a really fascinating project because it was a kind of a manifesto and i was kind of really interested in why it's important that architects are involved in this area because there are some people who would say that this is not architecture and would be quite hostile to it for that you know, reason it's, I think it's important to consider, again, looking back in history to learn why it was important in the past for architects to engage with new media, new technolo technology. And also just important to note that we are sort of in, in the very, very early stages where like we're sort of in the fax machine or the Atari age of, uh, of this new technology where no one really knows where it's going. And it certainly hasn't had really great impacts yet, but they will have for sure. So we might, it might be comparable looking at again, back into when the book was first introduced, it's difficult to know how architects were thinking about it, but certainly like the influence was massive simply because ideas could all of a sudden be tra traveling at great distances. And, and um, as Mario Carpo says in his book, Architecture in the Age of Printing, that before the book buildings could not travel. So people had to. And funnily enough, right now, when we're designing virtual spaces, literally it's the opposite. People cannot travel, so buildings have to. If we want to be in the same spaces, then the buildings have to come to us through technology. And of course, now during the lockdown, this has become more pressing than ever, and the gaming industry is exploding, and we're getting loads of commissions to design virtual spaces. But it's still like in such early days, we're, we're literally like 50 years away from it becoming any form of mainstream um, or perhaps 20 years potentially. But uh, if we just look at how long it's taken gaming to become such an enormous industry as it is today. Also even more simply, it's like these spaces are becoming three-dimensional spaces that you can bring your body into. So if you care about three-dimensional space where people spend time in and you want to make those of higher quality, then as an architect, you would maybe want to get involved in this. That's just a very simple way of putting it. So you would say that this is as a big leap as, say, the uh, invention of the printing press or the 
I don't know, the advent of photography or of TV. This is a similar or, or equivalent kind of moment. I would say it's not so much a paradigm shift or a leap. It's a, it's a very logical evolution. In the same way as I, I don't think photography came and like as a breaking point, it, the things keep evolving towards that. It just feels like the, the natural path to take that has been in development for, for very long. And I actually think it's more productive to look at it like that uh, instead of uh, looking at it as like a, a revolution, but it's an evolution. Just like we today, we don't really generally remember the sort of stereoscopes of the, of the Victorian era. There's sort of peculiarities where you might see one at a museum somewhere and you don't consider that was the paradigm shift. Then you would look at the kind of bigger steps of photography and the film camera and television eventually. So I think we're sort of in that moment, like in between photography and television, where uh, you won't maybe look at 2020 as being some kind of revolutionary time or, or even the beginning of the 20th century, but rather the internet and then what will come in the next 20 years is going to be this kind of moment when it's like, holy smokes, like my grandmother is, is roaming around in virtual spaces. You know? To talk about another exhibition that you did, uh, the freestyle exhibition at the uh, RIVA, which was another really fascinating project. And I was really struck by the almost kind of social agenda that was at the heart of it and the emancipatory power that you see in this technology and and style as you call it no longer being the preserve of the elite you've also talked uh, in the past about the open web and using platforms that aren't driven by data webxr mozilla hubs for example could you talk about why this is important and and perhaps that social agenda that underpins some of your work? Making as many forms of expression available to everybody is generally a great thing. You know? And the, the more ways in which we can express ourselves and communicate, the more we open up for maybe better, new and better ways of understanding each other. I think uh, when you look at the fashion industry, for example, now we most of us have the choice of uh, using that as a form of expression. That it, that it is very directly derived from the from the development of the textile industry, which has a lot of problems now with the, like the way in which clothes are produced. However, we all have a certain access to that. So architecture is, is not a field where most of us or like very few of us have access to using it in, in, in the way that it would be at the speed at which uh, it would be required in order for it to really be a, a form of self-expression. We had this uh, quote that, that, that we came up with at some point uh, during the development of the research that was um, that the virtual and real-time engines and the internet all together will allow architecture at the, at the speed of the spoken word. And that's where we see an incredible potential for it to truly become a form of communication that is not restricted to to an elite, both uh, like financial <laughs> elite, but also a cultural or academic elite. And any form of communication infrastructure should always aim towards being as inclusive as possible. And that's been usually the, the fate of most communication infrastructure in the past that has first been commercially driven, like the telegraph and the telephone network, et cetera. And then when the world realizes like how important they are, they somehow in the past at least have gotten sort of nationalized. So they go through a process of becoming 
a kind of common utility that everyone should have access to. And we see that you know, if we take that, what Larif's just saying about architecture, the speed of the spoken word, literally like space becoming not just our next computing platform that we don't interact with, uh, with the world through two-dimensional screens anymore, but we're literally inside of the computational world at the same time as we're putting our kids to bed or we're, or we're out running, whatever it happens to be. Then we have to bring in everyone. Otherwise, we're literally going to break the world so that's why we, we deal a lot with this in our projects like Freestyle with Jimmy Bose or with our teaching with the civic program at the Architectural Association where we specifically ask students to, to design virtual architecture that has a civic public goal because that's, that's, it's essential that it goes in that direction, especially when you come to the conclusions that we are when we think about how incredibly powerful this is going to become and how if it is in the, in the hands of a few, it will break the world. We can see that many examples have had positive outcomes in the past, and this just has to have it too. So we're trying to do our best to sort of, in the opportunities we get to speak towards healthy ways that you can, what you can do right now, but also ways to look at it in the future. Using, for instance, mm -hmm. Mozilla Hubs, which is run by a nonprofit that does not harvest data. It's a very, very simple choice to support something that, that speaks for a brighter future. Those spaces uh, that you've designed, they, I think, quite self-consciously take elements from the real physical world and transport them in, into, this, into this virtual realm. So what you create is still relatable and navigable as, as architecture, as, as almost kind of, sort of virtual public spaces. And I'm wondering, thinking about an equivalent moment in with the advent of smartphones and the way initially they used the sort of technique of skeuomorphism of the interfaces looking like things from the from real life the you know the notes app looked like a notepad which was i think quite an important thing because the touchscreen was this new interface paradigm now obviously we're kind of familiar with it we know you know instinctively how these things work it's no longer necessary and interfaces kind of go have gone off into a kind of world of abstraction, but is is do you see this as a similar kind of thing for VR? Is is this a necessary stage because, as you've said, these technologies are really in their infancy, or is this something actually that maybe will persist? I think it it has to it will persist, uh, and the, there are two ways of looking at why this is happening. One is that uh, we basically virtual spaces being three-dimensional, they're literally going to be overlaid onto our physical environments and therefore had to work with it. That's something that we explored, for example, in another project called the Van Room that quite literally shows the issues that we will have to resolve spatially in, with regards to bringing someone else virtually into your apartment from their apartment, for example, and that you can never anymore uh, like not consider that there is a body moving in a physical space. So that's one reason why these things need to fit. Then I guess more from the point that you were asking the, the whole referential aspect, I think it will always be there basically because if uh, when we are considering the rest of the senses and not just vision, they're basically triggered by references to the physical realm, right? So uh, the, if you are working with uh, a certain amount of references that then you can twist and turn, but there is still a basis that you're working with that is generally 
you expect that it will be generally understood by everybody, then you're tapping into a haptic memory, right? In some form of synesthetic way where you are bringing in a lot more than the visual experience because through vision, we're creating, we are auto-completing some of the other senses. I really like that idea of auto-completing the senses. I think that's really, that's really fascinating. What about some of the downsides of all of this? Uh, I mean, interestingly, just this morning, there was an article in The Guardian on wearables and sort of speculating of the, the future with the sort of forthcoming Apple glasses, long rumored device, and the potential downsides, particularly in terms of sort of data scraping and the way we're potentially ceding control of our lives to these unaccountable mega corporations. I mean, a lot of this is, is, is very familiar. I was, I was wondering what your views are on this. And, and the other thing I wanted to ask about is, is, to my mind, the article sort of missed the point, actually, because what is potentially more worrying is the way that the, the best technology and the best connections will only be available to the very richest. So actually, there'll be, I think, potentially quite extreme sort of social and economic stratification potentially in how we experience the everyday, the everyday world that is, in theory, going to be overlaid by some kind of, of AR experience? It's a really interesting question. And we think that as long as meaningful humans' connections are being made, the technology will find a way to persist and survive. And that's already happening in VR. We, we spend a lot of time in what is called social VR platforms, where you're wearing a headset and you're in there with your avatar together with other people. And in there, there are already hundreds of thousands of people that have real and meaningful communities and connections with people. And those people, they will fight to maintain that. Having said that, there will be so much friction in the world with these new technologies. They will be changing everything in so many different ways. And we have considered and, and people do talk about the potential for a sort of VR winter or something where, where the world realizes how incredibly shocking this is for the world and then basically puts on the brakes. It could be uh, nations doing this or there could be pressures from, from families doing this. And one interesting comparison, it might seem like a long shot, but the only other moment we've seen it in the 20th century was the, the world's reaction to, to psychedelics. It's not necessarily technological, but... It was too shocking for the world to deal with. It was just, we need to stop this completely because we don't know what the hell is going on. And then it's only now, many decades later, when the world is starting to say, okay, now it's the slowly again, start exploring this. Universities are starting to allow it again to, to explore. But we think that as long as there are these meaningful connections across generations, it will persist. But of course, then you have the enormous kind of rifts between who can afford it to who can who cannot. It might the world might be really created and built already when, in the moment when people of other places or, or less fortunate, less privileged has an access to these spaces. So that's a huge consideration and problem potentially. The layers of data harvesting are crazy, right? Biometric data and so on. That. It I don't know, I think it will maybe get so blown up that at some point we will need to almost shift gear with that or shift our way of, of thinking from privacy to even like something else, a whole other ethical order. <laughs> because, I mean, it's almost like I can read a lot of data from looking at your facial expressions or your body movements, your gestures. Like As, as humans, we're really good at that. And I think it's almost comparable the way in which 
what this technology will allow in terms of reading you, that it will be almost unstoppable, that I think it would call for a new kind of ethical code, uh, overall agreement, as opposed to more privacy policies. Following up from, again, something you mentioned, I mean, now that our our working and social lives are, for the last seven, eight, nine months, almost entirely based on the screen, you know, you talk about sort of Zoom fatigue, which is something that gets written about, but it is a real thing. The fact that it is considerably more tiring physically and, and mentally to be on Zoom all day than it is to be in a meeting. And, I, and you know, there's lots of, sort of speculations, I'm sure lots of research going into why that is, but it is something about that kind of the concentration of the sensory experience and all those other little signals that we get from actually being in a room with other people, we don't get when everything is so focused on the screen. I'm interested, coming from, from that, what you think the, the experience of, of the pandemic has been on all of these questions that we've been discussing, because the sort of popular take of COVID is as a kind of accelerator, you know, simply accelerating trends that are already uh, happening. And obviously, this is very obvious with the digital. But do you think there are things that have fundamentally changed? Is it simply a case of we're experiencing things that we would have got to eventually? Or has there been anything that has changed things fundamentally? There are obviously many, many things. But I think maybe the most important one is we, we will not be able to see it even until much, much, much later, which is the, the, what this experience is doing to different generations. Because by the time this is all over and a few years have passed, the people that were sort of not in control of how they interact with other people, meaning younger people, teenagers and children, which where like the, the, the access to the rest of the world is through their parents, through the devices and the computers, and they don't have access to them all the time. I think that is one thing that I hear not so much about, which we have, we've talked about a little bit and where that divide will be massive and probably creating a kind of rift in between different generations where many of us that have control over this, we can buy a webcam, we can buy a, whatever we want or, or arrange a life around an internet connection where we can still have some kind of social life. Whereas people that are not in control of their life in the same way have an incredibly different experience that is changing the way they look at the world that might create all sorts of both positive and negative ways that how they will operate in the world in the next 10, 20 years. Thank you very much, Lara Lesmes and Frederick Helberg for contributing to 20 by 20. Thank you so much. This is so much fun. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it was great to speak to you, Owen. You've been listening to 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape. Stay tuned for more episodes Write a review or give us a rating and be sure to follow us on your preferred podcast platform.